Hi, Blake. Hey, Kayla. How are you? I'm good. You know, I'm good. It's uh, again, we've fallen into these Friday recordings. It's a Friday. It's a Friday. We are back here on Under the Arch, and I'm excited about this conversation. So welcome back to our listeners. Yes, welcome back. This is still a podcast where we explore the issues facing our community and the people fighting to transform them. I am your co-host, Kayla Reed, Executive Director of Action St. Louis. And I am Blake Strode, Executive Director of Arch City Defenders. And I feel like today we have been teasing this topic in many conversations. It's been the one I've been waiting on, I feel like. I'm like, the boogeyman's. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Um, we, We keep talking about these the kind of major lines of attack coming from the right. And one of them that we've been referencing is like this attack on all things black thought, critical black thought. And so we want to unpack that. Like we are in a very particular moment of of that attack today. And it is taking a, a concerted and intense form and, uh, we wanted to spend some time unpacking that and, and trying to understand it. Yeah, like you said, it, it's been threaded through our season where we've sort of talked about the rights attack on queer and trans folks. In our last episode, we talked about the continued um, destruction of democracy with the gutting of things like initiative petition this season and voting rights. And now we're landing um, as we get ready to wrap up the season, which is just wild, um, we're landing in this conversation about critical race theory and this sort of attack on, quote, woke, right, which is a, um, we're seeing that sort of happen inside of schools, libraries, corporations, governmental entities, and um, we're watching as we get prepared to walk into a presidential election year, this conversation takes center stage um, amongst the Republican uh, candidates seeking the nomination. And so it really is just, it's it's everywhere, right? And it, mm-hmm. it, it feels so um, interesting, I guess is the only word I'll say, to be folks who came out of Black movement, who have watched the resistance movement of the last decades, the movement for Black lives, all these things take shape um, and really push this discourse and this reaction this visceral reaction um, to, to erase history. But we also know that that's not unique to this moment. So I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. We should introduce our guest. Yes, we have an ama- We're going back to class today. We're going oh, back to class. But under the arch is class. And papers out. Imagine you are under the arch with your pencil and paper on the grass. <laughs> we got a professor in the room. Yes. Professor yes. Chris Tinson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I, you know, I'm a longtime admirer of your guys' work and your commitment to transforming St. Louis as a transplant from the East Coast via the West Coast. Being in the Midwest, I've been learning a lot, and I, I really salute the work that y'all been doing. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I was looking up the the area code on your phone number, and I was like, what area code is that? It's right, like Western Massachusetts. Western so Massachusetts. I had to dig into your bio. It's not the uh, 314, it's the 413. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. 
yeah. yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's tell the people a little bit about you, you know, speaking of bios. Um, Chris M. Tenson, uh, Dr. Chris Tenson, is currently an associate professor of African-American studies and history at St. Louis University uh, and chairs the Department of African-American Studies and holds a secondary appointment in the School of Law. His scholarship and teaching focuses on African diasporic intellectual and political history, U.S. ethnic studies, critical media studies, incarceration, and race and sports. His writings and reviews have been published in The Black Scholar, Equity and Excellence in Education, Souls, the Journal of African American History, and Counterpunch, and last but not least, his first book entitled Radical Intellect, Liberator Magazine and Black Activism in the 1960s is published on UNC Press and was the winner of the inaugural Polly Murray Prize for Best Book in African-American Intellectual History. So uh, we are so thrilled to have you here. And uh, listeners, as you can hear, we have um, someone who is deeply qualified to help us better understand this subject matter. Uh, so so we're, we're excited to dive in with you. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, so we want to just jump right in. Um, mm-hmm. We've, Like I said, we've been having a piece of this conversation all season, and we've, we're hearing this word, this phrase everywhere, right? And so for our listeners, what is critical race theory? Yeah, critical race theory really emerges in uh, the post-civil rights uh, era context of uh, really in the, in the legal in the legal realm specifically. These were um, progressive-minded young law students of which Kremlin Crenshaw was a member, um, and they were being mentored by activists in the civil rights movement and in the Black Power movements. And so they were already coming to law school with critical questions in mind about the, the, the foundations of the law, the foundations of, of American history, foundations of American society. And so uh, many of them had been trained also in Africana studies, you know, uh, programs, you know, as undergraduates. By the time they go to law school, they start asking more critical questions. And there was actually a movement called um, Critical Le- Legal Theory that had a bunch of conferences. And so within that uh, grouping, at these conferences, another group spawned that was even more radical than, <laughs> or trying to ask questions and address questions that wasn't being asked even in the critical legal uh, space. So um, Kimberly Crenshaw was one of these folks, right? And so um, as a younger person thinking about the foundations of the law, um, critical race theory emerges out of this persistent questioning as to how the law functions to maintain power. Right. Um, and so when we talk about critical race theory, it's really um, a framework of analysis to help us understand the way in which um, power is upheld by our legal structure and our legal structure as the backbone of American society. Um, basically, the, the parameters on our on our daily movement. Right. Is, is the law. That's what the law represents, what we can and can't do. And it's also um, trying to really critique the what we say is progress, right? So civil rights legislation purported to address discrimination, purported to address racism. And so critical race theory points out the limitations in even the so-called successes, 
So it's really a framework of critique that doesn't settle for status quo victories, right? It asks more questions about how in the name of progress does discrimination continue, right? How does wealth gap continue? How does um, poverty and um, prison industrial complex expand, even as we're saying we're trying to bring justice to it? So it's it's really a critique of liberal society. Um, It's a critique of racial liberalism, which is to say, you know, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act solve all the problems or that the election of Barack Obama solved all the racial problems. And so it's a critique of post-racialism. It's a critique of a liberal sense of democracy. Um, And so it, it provides a framework from which you think deeper about how the law is functioning in our society. So um, that's the way I I tend to teach my students about how we uh, approach critical race theory. And that's the reason why I think also it does um, provide some of somewhat of a threat to people who um, and to to a a, a mentality that does think that progress is inevitable in American society, that meritocracy is a real thing um, and that people get what they deserve, et cetera. And that if you just try hard, things will turn out in your favor. Critical race theory pokes a hole in that. So Mm -hmm. so people who hold on to those myths of American society are challenged when critical race theory emerges in the the discursive space. Mm -hmm. And so it's a it's a framework of analysis that challenges how we see discrimination, how we measure discrimination, how we measure inequality and the you know, material results of what the law produces. Yeah, I I so appreciate that detailed um, explanation around uh, CRT, because one of the things that has been so strange and at times confusing (laughs) um, and hard to track in over the past few years is like CRT has become a stand-in for so many things, um, rhetorically has become a stand-in for so many things. And um, as you're describing, you know, as someone who went to law school, who's a, a practicing lawyer, mm-hmm. like my, my introduction to CRT was very much in that context. I'd never heard the phrase right. until halfway through law school and learning about folks like Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell and learning about it as a, a particular um, framework and area of study within that was pretty niche. I mean, among legal theorists and academics, um, but what we've seen is the weaponization of, of that very concept of, of kind of critical analysis, mostly in terms of race, but as we can talk about, you know, in terms of gender, in terms of other things, um, and, and mapping CRT onto anything that's bringing a critical lens to, you know, American empire, et cetera. And so I, I think... In, in this conversation, while we're going to we're going to talk about CRT, we're going to talk about other things, I think more broadly, we certainly have thought about this as as more broadly thinking about black studies and sure. sort of black radical thought and, and would love for you to give us a similar breakdown or, or kind of description of the tradition around black studies as an, an academic discipline and field. Um, and, and how that has has developed over the past, uh, well, I was going to say over the past maybe six or seven yeah. decades, but is that even right? It's probably close to a century, you know, mm-hmm. um, at least in terms of formal, you know, the formal study. 
when we're talking about the departments and programs, you know, that necessarily comes after the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And so we're thinking about 1968, 69 as kind of the, the formal, you know, fruition of black studies programs and departments in the United States in university settings. But just the study of black life um, has been going on, you know, since at least in a formal sense, meaning people uh, writing books, you know, mm-hmm. black authors writing books about uh, black history, publishing these books. That goes back at least to, um, you know, the 1880s. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about uh George Washington Williams and others, you know, as the early historians of of our experience. But, you know, I think it's interesting, the the relationship between CRT and black studies, you know, they aren't the same. I think we need to say that. And I think that, um, you know, people who are black studies professors want to make that distinction. However, they do have similar trajectories and similar um, impulses. And I think that Kimberly Crenshaw having gone to school at Cornell University, which was a place that was one of the main sites for the, uh, for the fruition of black studies as a formal space of study, systematic study in the academy. She was a student of um, you know, James Turner, who was a, a leader in the Africana studies movement. And I'll use throughout our conversation Africana studies and black studies synonymously. Mm-hmm. I'll just you know go back and forth. But they at, at Cornell University, uh, Dr. Turner was one of Kimberly Crenshaw's mentors. Okay, and when she goes to law school, then um, Professor Bell becomes a mentor, right? But she had already had the kind of critical lens of really thinking about how do we get here? Like, what's the real origin story and the why of it, and then the how of it? And so uh, while Kimberly Crenshaw has a particular uh, evolution within black, that includes black studies that she brings into her legal work. Um, not all critical race theorists do, but I think that they do have something that they do owe a debt in a way to uh, black studies and what black studies was doing. Now, in terms of um, black studies, you know, black studies formally is celebrating about 60 years in the academy. You know, um, you know you're talking about people developing programs, people starting institutes and the original idea depending on who you read was to have a relationship an organic relationship between black communities and the university space Mm -hmm. and so it was a space where there would there should be some bridging you know in terms of ideas coming from community and the ideas that are being developed in the university are supposed to be helping community and there was this reciprocal kind of um, impact that people imagined at the origins of black studies. And at the heart of that was a question of transformation of American society in particular. Interestingly enough, across the Atlantic with the, the African independence movements of the 1950s and 60s, they're also going through their own thoughts about what does it mean to have an African university? So at the same time in the United States, we're thinking about black studies and perhaps mm-hmm. black universities or transforming HBCUs into really radical spaces across the continent. They're doing the same thing in different ways. Right. And so in Ghana and Tanzania um, were two of the hotbeds for that work. And I just want to put that out because when we talk mm-hmm. about Africana studies, it really is a global enterprise. And in fact, at SLU, we treat black studies as a global experience. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we want to 
think about what's going on with Brazil, what's going on with Cuba, and what's going on with Puerto Rico, as well as on the continent, as well as in Europe, et cetera. So anywhere African descendants are, we want to study it systematically. That's what mm-hmm. we're training our students to do. And we're, it's an interdisciplinary area, so we're using history and sociology and philosophy and literature, right? But the frame of mind and the framework and the critical lens is what differentiates it and makes it black studies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're still the only area of study that can claim black life, black experiences as the center of the enterprise. No other discipline can claim that. That's so we are very proud about that even though we've influenced a lot of different um, areas of study. So I think in terms of, you know, the conflation of CRT and black studies is intentional. It's, it's on one hand, very lazy. And on the other hand, it's um, very intentional, right? Because there was never an intention to really have black studies expand in the university setting precisely because of the questions that it was asking. So in very few spaces, you will see um, large African-American studies departments, right? But they were never intended to really really be on equal standing with, say, the history department or with the philosophy department. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, there has been this long effort to reduce the full impact of African-American studies, even as it's being embraced into the academy. It's been included in the academy, but just not expanded. And what do I mean by expanding? Well, in many of these universities where you have black studies departments, it's not required for freshmen to take any of our classes. It's not a requirement of the university, right? Um, and so when, when you do see those requirements is because it came after a protracted struggle of faculty and students and graduate students and alumni demanding that all freshmen at least take one African-American class, African-American studies class. And so when you think about that, you can see that, yeah, you know, these trustees, they're not really feeling this too much. You know, you can go university by university and see it. Um, But I think where the biggest attack has been felt has been on our community structures, you know, in terms of bookstores and meeting spaces uh, that are autonomous and that do the work of black studies, you know. Um, And so those spaces have kind of been eroded in many respects. And so that community support that that was first imagined at the onset of black studies in the 1960s, that piece um, has kind of been really challenging to to uphold for many of us. I know that's a long winded way of answering your question, uh, (laughs) Mike, but I think that thinking about thinking about the kind of long struggle that we've been in and then the easy conflation of CRT is like, okay, yeah, well, you know, they've long wanted to marginalize black studies. And now this mm-hmm. is just a, another layer of that um, to, to, to put everything under a CRT umbrella. Yeah. Know? And you mentioned, you mentioned this, like, you know, I, I'm such a fan of black studies, got my degree um, in, in African and African American studies and sociology and that intersection was just really important to me in the work that mm-hmm. I do every day around this idea that history is layered. It lives inside of our communities. It creates systems and policies that impact our communities. And I think these, these um, what I've always seen 
you know, I was at SLU in 2008 when there was not an African-American, there was not an Africana Studies Department. There was really just the beginning of what was going to become a certificate. And now it's actually a formal department. Um, And so watching that evolution even happen inside of St. Louis, where you sort of have one university literally next door to an HBCU not have a Black Studies Department. And now, you know, that is sort of um, yeah. it's almost like the standard, right, of, of major institutions that they have That's to have right. these these programs um, in, in, on the books. And so I appreciate that history because I think it's really I think it's really relevant um, because it talks about this. It talks about the reality of, of a mm-hmm. conversation that we often want to keep on the margins becoming more mainstream. I think you 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 hit it on the head. And I was thinking about as you were as you were uh breaking that down, I'm thinking about the way in which the kind of um, even HBCUs have had to kind of open up or, or kind of have a different mindset towards black studies over the years, right? Because many of the HBCUs were trying to, you know, create African-Americans that were going to go into the mainstream of American society in whatever field, right? Mm-hmm. And so here comes black studies at a black university and people were like, wait, should we be doing it? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And because of, because of its association with progressive ideas, I won't say radical ideas necessarily just depends on where you're at, but definitely progressive ideals at the heart of black studies. It actually put a lot of HBCUs at a pause. They had to mm-hmm. figure out how do we want to associate with this? And so in many places, even at a black university, they wouldn't necessarily embrace black studies. But at a place like Howard, through it, again, through faculty struggle, student struggle, alumni, et cetera, they do have that at a place like Howard. I think Prairie View A&M now has a Department of African-American Studies you know, at HBCU. But it's, it's not a foregone conclusion that HBCUs would just include black studies, but for different reasons. And, and really it comes down to what do we think the function of education should be, right? Is the function of education to get us into uh, mainstream industry, mainstream opportunities for, uh, you know, capitalist opportunities, let's just say, you know, getting employment opportunities, what have you. Um, And even many of the uh, older faculty, so say World War II generation faculty at many of the HBCUs, many of the African-American faculty in those spaces, with the exception of people like Du Bois and others, you know, they questioned when the 1960s rolled around, they questioned whether or not there was a need for black studies, you know? So there was a generational divide um, in many of these places. So I'm glad that you mentioned the HBCU. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about the, the marginalization of black studies within the academy to talk about this sort of fraught relationship with, with HBCUs and uh, Kayla and I had shared with you before we started recording that one of one of the ways we were trying to do our homework in advance of this conversation was was reading a, a piece by um, Robin D.G. Kelly that was um, published this week and who uh, you shared. Um, Chris is a mentor of yours. Kayla and I are just adoring fans of his. Mm-hmm. But there's this this line that came to mind as you were talking just then where he said, who's afraid of black studies? White supremacists, fascists, the ruling class, and even some liberals, as well as they as well they should be. Right. And, and right. you hear that when you think about the the power structure within 
the academy, the power structure within HBCUs, the you know within broader um, yeah and civic the, and, and political society. And, and so, real quick, I think that yeah. the reason sometimes and I and I don't I don't point that out so that we could critique HBCUs as being backwards or something. They sure. were basically in a survival mode, mm-hmm. many of them, um, and many of them also had uh, white millionaire philanthropists and business owners, entrepreneurs on their board of trustees. Right? So this becomes one of those structural pieces where it's like we can't fully, on paper at least, support radical thought as such when we have, you know, Sears and Roebuck CEO on the, on the board of trustees, right, yeah. for example. And yeah. I think that those are, and you know, those, those money kind of interests are still the things that have to be struggled around, you know, to this mm-hmm, day, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think what saves us now is is being put forth, is influencing mainstream journalism. Mm-hmm. You know, if we see the 1619 Project, for example, I would claim that that's an inheritance of Black Studies tradition mm-hmm, or yeah. certainly, certainly African-American historical tradition, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, Robin is... Um, He's a five-star general when it comes to, <laughs> it, right? So therefore, he can say what he said, right? Like it's yeah. scaring the fascists, it's scaring this. Absolutely, um, mm-hmm. but you're not going to get many folks to be as um, as forthright as, as that. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, you know, there is room for people who do want to just, you know, tell traditional experience uh, without traditional experience of African Americans throughout the world and in the United States without. Uh, a necessarily obvious ideological position, right? Mm-hmm. But certainly mm-hmm. it's political to the extent um, that African-American and African diasporic stories aren't celebrated, aren't talked about in the mainstream. So therefore to include them is sort of a political act, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. the ideological piece that Robin is identifying, I think is important you know, for us to remember that we are not here, Black Studies is not here to affirm the status quo, politically, mm-hmm. economically, socially, and what have you. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to, to pause and go to our music minute. And when we get back, we are going to talk about some of the efforts that have, you know, really been introduced around um, this attack on sort of both history and thought, right? And I think is important. And so we're going to take just a quick second to go to our music minute. Um, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Under the Arch.
hope you enjoyed that STL Music Minute. That was a song by called Posture by Shinra Nyes, and you can find Shinra Nyes' music on all streaming platforms. And so we're back with Professor uh, Tencent talking about the history of Black studies, the history of critical race theory, as it actually is defined. Now we're going to talk to, now we're going to just pivot around how it's actually being discussed and, and weaponized inside of our um, inside of our community. So just as an overview for our listeners, um, this sort of anti-critical race theory, this anti-woke sentiment really has taken shape inside of state legislatures. Um, 36 states have adopted laws restricting teaching about race and racism, um, with most of these bills being introduced during the 2022 and 2023 legislative um, sessions. There have been restrictions on what Black studies can teach in both um K through 12 spaces and uh, collegiate spaces. And one of the sort of most intriguing things is like 90, 94% of successful measures target K through 12 education, which impacts, you know, nearly half of all public school children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a, this is a conversation. And as I mentioned at the top of the call, it's happening. Um, it's happening in our state legislatures. It's happening in sort of the national context as we get ready to head into an election year. And so for our listeners, Professor Tenson, why is this happening right now? Well, I mean, I think that one of the things we have to keep in mind is, you know, during the pandemic, well, we're still in the pandemic, right? But during the high point of the pandemic, when mm-hmm. we were all on lockdown, what came right after that was the George Floyd murder and then the protests that ensued. And in many respects, the what cohered afterward was kind of, what do we do next? One is attack policing structures that allow this kind of brutality to take place in the name of the law with taxpayer dollars. That's the first step. Second, legal redress for George Floyd and his family, right? And then all the other victims that we begin to name during that time. And from then the next step would be well, then how are we learning about how this happens, right? How are we learning about how are police educated? Where do police come from, right? If they come from the citizenship, the, the regular citizenry, then they must be going to public schools like us, right? And so how are they then when they take, take that oath and put on the badge, can they just take a life so easily? So what's about their indoctrination, their education that needs to be undone in order so that we can create some public safety for black folk. So the, the educational piece was kind of the third step. Activists, smart activists, I'm talking to two of them here, is they start to say, well, let's meet up and let's really figure out curricula. Let's really figure out how do we, how do we make sure that we're not raising the next generation of people who are ready to take black lives, right? And so that automatically puts us in a posture of thinking about how do we get materials? What are the, some new books? What is the literature? You saw a flourishing of literature about police brutality. Um, all of the major corporations responded, right? It was the first time in history you saw when I turned on, you know, my uh, Apple TV, there was some BLM statement. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I was like, what is this, right? The, the NFL, for all of their BS, they even tried to, you know, put some stuff in the end zone, put some stuff on the helmet. Mm-hmm. We saw what happened with the NBA where they put any, you know, equality, brotherhood and all this kind of stuff on the back of the jerseys while they're playing the game. So there was all of this kind of concerted effort 
that was brought about by the pressure that was put because of all the attention on the George Floyd situation. Mm-hmm. What we're experiencing now, and, and, and all of that is beautiful, right? All of that is, but even with the capitalist entanglements and the way in which they're still trying to make money, even as they speak to social justice, which is what the NFL and NBA and MLB were all trying to do, even in soccer, they were you know putting some statements out as well. Um, and so that's all beautiful work. That's all necessary work. In the society that we have, which is which is hyper connected through technology and capital, um, mm-hmm. those have to be marked as some kind of victories, right? Because it means that hey, at least our message from the kind of BLM stratosphere is puncturing the mainstream on some level. What we forget about in those successes is that those successes necessarily produce a backlash. Mm-hmm. So when you ask, why is this happening now? What we're experiencing is, is the backlash from all of that movement activity, all of that consciousness raising activity that happened around George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And because we were speaking about getting out of the streets and into the courtrooms, into the state legislatures, into our city councils, we, we had identified that as spaces because we knew that those were the seats of power. Once those statements come out, right, that this is our effort and the ground game, you know, from Cori Bush and all the Cori Bushes (laughs) around the country, right, start to really penetrate (laughs) the political apparatus. It has to be seized back. This is the work of white supremacy. White supremacy doesn't say that we want to produce more Kayla Reed's. We don't want more Kayla Reeds under mm-hmm. under white supremacist logic, right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, oh, they're taking over our schools. Well, we got to go take our schools back. And right. that possessiveness that is a part of uh, white citizenship is what we saw cohere on January 6th, right? That's the possessiveness of taking the country back, that notion of taking the country back because we're talking about police brutality, because we're talking about reparations, because we're talking about justice in our schools, because we're talking about true community accountability, right? Mm -hmm. Those are all democratic things that a possessive mindset can't allow. So a discussion of a multiracial democracy, a discussion of one person, one vote, a discussion of rights for the disenfranchised, a discussion of how do people get sent to the death penalty? How do people get prolonged sentences for things that people will get way less time for? When you start asking those structural questions, the possessive mindset of American society built on theft and settler colonialism kicks back in. Hmm. And the reward is we can we can put people in office that sound like us. This is DeSantis. We could put people in office that don't give a damn about anyone. That's Trump. And then all the people would line up around that, all that side of things, right? And so in American society, that backlash is always ever present. And some scholars have even theorized that that's a front lash, right? That it's never really a backlash because mm-hmm. they never intended for the progress to happen in the first place. So now you just, you see a little bit of progress and you have to roll it back. Mm-hmm. And that's the effort that we're seeing right now. This is just a new... Um, a new version of of an old uh, possessiveness because, by and large, 
white citizens have been taught that American society is theirs and theirs alone. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in that kind of a space where people where where patriotism becomes religion, then you can see why this is so important, why you have the so-called Beckys and the so-called Karens taking over school meeting <laughs> when they never attended the school meeting ever. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Their parents probably never even attended the school meeting when they were in school. Right. But now they taking over the school board meetings being as disruptive as ever in the name of saving their children. Right. And so this is a, uh, the kind of conundrum that we, that we face in American society. It's one that people on our side of the question embrace as part of the struggle, right? For change, for transformation, for justice. Um, but I think it shouldn't be any surprise for those of us who think historically about our movements to see that this is just another variation of backlash. We saw it against the Obama administration, for example, right? One could say that Trump is the backlash to the Obama administration when everybody was telling us that we were we had achieved a post-racial society. Mm-hmm. Most people were like, well, post-racial, well, what happened to reparations? You know, we never got to the reparations part, so how did we get to post-racial? So there's a question of progress in American society that I think mm-hmm. is tied to the American identity and then the last piece I'll say is for now is just that um, there's a tradition as we're speaking of, there's a there's an intellectual tradition that CRT comes out of, that black studies comes out of, that the you know the original black historians comes out of, you know, a tradition of intellectual work. But there's another tradition in American society of anti-intellectual work. Mm-hmm. So this this is a tradition in our society that doesn't get remarked on a lot. But it is one where simple wins, right? Well, simple makes sense. Where more complex layered questions, we don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. That kind of energy is also a part of American society. So, yeah. you know, so I think that people, critical race theory is, is, is just an easy target. Black studies becomes mm-hmm. like an easy target for a kind of general um, elite that don't want people to think deeply about how power is welded in society. Mm. And since we represent those spaces where we ask questions about power, then it becomes a target. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about, I, I think you, you use words that I was like, yo, this is, this is what we've been talking about. This is what we want to talk about. I'm obviously going to nerd out a bit, but this like indoctrination piece, right? Sure. That what we are watching are white women who are, being impacted by all of these other bans and restrictions, right? Take on the mantle of taking over school boards and pushing back against critical race theory. That's culminating in things like books being banned, books on just the historical realities of this country. A book about Rosa Parks is being banned. This is not, you know, part of the black radical uh, tradition or Mm -hmm. critical race theory. These are just like historical facts of, of this country and the people who, occupied our nation across time. But I you use words like, you know, white supremacy, indoctrination, possessive, take back. And all and the sort of other side that we hear in their frame is this is about white children not feeling guilty. And this is about um them being able to have pride in their identity and not feeling not being divisive. Yeah, not being divisive. Um but actually it is about I, I sort of think it is about cracking open the fear that allyship can actually take 
hold inside of a place like the United States, where we are seeing white families raise their children, understanding that things are not fair, things are things are out of um, out of balance, and it's our responsibility to correct those things. And if we start to do that, then we do disrupt this sort of undercurrent ideologies of this country, white supremacy, mm-hmm. capitalism. Because then we start asking, well, why do these people make this much and we make this much? Then we start asking, well, why do they live here and we live there? And once we start asking those questions, it really does expose, um, you know, the, um, the American project is something that has thrived off of inequality and requires inequality to be prosperous right. for, for the few. That's yeah. right. I mean, to that point, I think what terrifies ruling class, white power structure, even more, or at least as much as conscious black folks out on the street is like seeing their kids and grandkids out carrying signs, wearing shirts, saying stuff that is an indictment of them. I think that is, that's when the panic sets in and it's like, oh, we got to change this curriculum. We got to do something about what these kids are learning and it is a textbook. I appreciate you sort of pointing out the ways it's a textbook response. Like the the irony is, you know, all of the, the like you think about some of the, the popular texts that they hate the most, the how to be an anti-racist or like white fragility mm-hmm. or, or 1619. Like they are acting baby. out the characters yeah. <laughs> in those in those texts. Right. right. Uh, but the, you know, the, the curiosity I have around is like, what is that then? I mean, may, maybe it's obvious, but as, as an educator, as someone who's like in academic institutions, like what what effect does that have? How does that actually land on the ground inside of academic institutions? Hmm. It's a good question. I think that it's I have the way I would answer it is is twofold. One is the kind of general space, right, which is just all American students coming out of. Um, K through 12, let's just say public education, right? They, they're taught a certain narrative about, you know, things and they're, but mainly they're not taught to really put too much emphasis on it. It's just, Hey, get the grades you need so that you can matriculate on time. And if you want to go to college, you should be able to go to college. Mm -hmm. It's in the spaces where like a lot of students that come to SLU, they, they tend to come from more well uh, positioned backgrounds and, um, they've been exposed to a version of power, but not to critique it, right? And so they come basically trying to uphold the status quo, whatever they've been taught, whatever privileges they, they've had. And, mm-hmm. I, and I always joke with my students, but I'm dead serious when I say <laughs> that the reason why you're here is to maintain or improve your class position. None of you are coming to university to go lower okay <laughs> so, so you're either trying to protect what wealth your parents have or trying to increase it you know and those are the, the options for the student but the students are coming and they're uh i would say some of them are afraid to ask the tough questions the people that i mm-hmm. the students that i usually get tend to be on the braver side even if there are white students they tend to be a little more open-minded um, very infrequently, but I have had some examples of students who came in, you know, holding on to all the kind of modern day Republicanism and bringing that into the class every day. 
and basically trying to challenge everything that I was saying, right? And I love those kind of students because, mm-hmm. you know, you just <laughs> you just have to little by little unpack it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you get them to convert their ideas just a little bit, you know, there's an opening. And mm-hmm. I tell students, I say, listen, I don't want you to be disowned by your family once you mm-hmm. understand this, this material. But they may ask you to go eat in the other room occasionally <laughs> when you're home. Because you're going to be asking questions and you're going to be poking at everything. And why are we only watching Fox News? And can't you understand that this is BS? And don't you understand what you're right? They're mm-hmm. going to be in the households doing that. So to your mm-hmm. point, like you're absolutely right. Like they're 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 terrified that their kids might become black studies minded, right? Black studies mind is simply critical, a critical mind about how how power is achieved. And we and we look at African American studies. And I mean, African-Americans and African people in the diaspora as the kind of case study. Right. So we mm-hmm. studying power, but looking through the lens of these folk and their experiences. And so the more students we can get to do that, the closer we can get possibly conceivably to a multiracial democracy. Right. Mm-hmm. Like what we imagine as a multiracial democracy, um, not to say that white supremacy would be ended, but it would just be muted, you know, or kind of deemed irrelevant. And um, and so I think that that's certainly at the heart of it. And I think the other part, too, is what do how do universities serve their own interests? Right. And so one of the things that universities want to do is keep capital coming in. Right. Like accumulation of property resources um, and harboring of those resources is is the agenda of the modern university. Mm. That's the agenda. And in the, in the state schools, the agenda is to serve state interests, right? And by state interests, we're thinking also about national interests. So you'll see in a lot of the STEM fields at state universities, a lot of relationships with the DOJ, a lot of relationships with mm-hmm. U.S. Army, et cetera, like this, because that, you know, this is state, this is state schools, we serve as state interests. At the private institutions, we have a little more wiggle room to do, you know, innovative stuff. If it's in alignment with some of the interests of the school, which at a, at a place like SLU has a mission driven, right, university. So its its mission has to appeal to social justice, right, um, work on behalf of the greater, you know, the, the, to the glory of God, right? Like these higher ideals at a place like a SLU give some uh, opportunity, some space to raise critical questions, challenge people in different ways, right? But at the same time, it's still a part of uh, the Catholic intellectual tradition as well, right? So then, you know, so then what kinds of critical questions emerge in that space? So I think overall, students at 18 years old tend to want to be open-minded, but I think also they are also thinking about going home for Thanksgiving and Christmas where they have to encounter people who they know would disagree Mm -hmm. with what their professor is saying. And I think students, um, they go through that in their own time. Some don't care. Uh, Some get through it. And some are just brilliant regardless. But some of them are faced with that challenge of what what do I say when everything that I've learned, that my grandfather, that my my uncle who was in Vietnam has been talking, and Mm -hmm. I have to confront him because what he's saying is racist, right? Mm -hmm. That's a challenge for a lot of students. But we're not, we're also not trying to just teach people just to go in and do gotcha moments, you know, where you're going home and everything you told me was wrong. 
it's really about how we understand uh, our role in society and what does it mean to be civically responsible. And I think going home and having challenging conversations about, you know, what the discursive space of your home is, you know, is a good is a good exercise, you know. So but I think a lot of that scares a lot of people, though, for sure. Yeah. And I think I think that when we think about 2020, right, in 2016, I also I say, you know, Trump is sort of this reaction, what happens after Trump, this sort of rise in the right, um, this like break in decorum, right? Or or sort of the like polished way that we were just letting like liberalism live and now we're sort of in this sort of fas- this neo-fascist age. Mm-hmm. Really also comes from this long arc of the resistance struggle. We saw what Ferguson did. We saw what happened with Trayvon. That you know this is happening under a black president, and this is creating massive discomfort because we're starting to question the the structure of policing. And that's be- that's not just being struck. Mm-hmm. That's not being questioned just by black folks, right? That's being questioned by the masses. Like, how do people like Sandra Bland and Philando Cast like how do these things happen repeatedly? Um, and, and social media really becoming this sort of democratizing space where you can't control all the things that your kids are learning and they're really stepping out and engaging in that. Uh, and I think we saw a couple of trends, right? We saw the increase in number of Black kids who went to HBCUs in the aftermath of that. And we're starting to see the growing number of Black folks, uh, Black students and non-Black students who are majoring in more, uh, you know, Black studies, sociology, uh, the humanities. Um, and the political sciences in response to what they are what they are growing up in. And yeah. so I think all of that sort of comes together. And what we are watching is a real fear around this idea that the future generation who we're watching win elections in landslides are the yeah. defining population of our democracy right now. Elections go how the young people vote and they're voting at higher trends than what we are used to young people mm-hmm. voting in. Um, we're concerned that that creating more conscious generations, more woke generations um, is going to disrupt white supremacy capitalism. It's going to call into question those systems. So I appreciate you laying that out in the context of, of university. The, yeah. the Sort of one of the last questions I want to ask is that this has moved beyond just universities and formal education. We're watching sure. book bans inside of our public libraries. Um, we're also seeing the attack on this sort of DEI, which is sort of the most liberal side of a conversation about minor race and gender, right? It's just diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, we're seeing attacks on that too happen. And so um, can you just speak to some of some of that reality and why you think that that's connected to this critical race theory? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's low hanging fruit for folks, you know, mm-hmm. like the governor Abbott in Texas. I mean, that's low hanging fruit, right? And I think that that's ridiculous. And I think that there should be, you know, I think, you know, looking at Texas, looking at Florida, there has to be um, some legal ground for suing these folks for doing this outrageous stuff. And the irony of, of course, using the courts, <laughs> like, right, like to, you know, like, but it's like, because that's the only thing that they would respond to, right, is an injunction, um, is a suit, you know. And so uh, I think that there has to be some kind of, strategy around that because some of this stuff is just nonsensical um but it's within the power of governor to do this right and so in texas we see this happening um but i think it's that's a clear violation of 
um, the kind of civil rights era le- legislation, right? And I think that, you know, um, the point of affirmative action, the point of the Voting Rights Act, the point of, you know, um, you know, getting rid of all white primaries, right, was to democratize, democratize the opportunity for folks to engage in mm-hmm. democratic process. And so if you don't have those guardrails in place, then that's that's where you basically give carte blanche to, to inequality and to people who don't want the marginalized to to be included. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're going down that that road. Mm-hmm. Abbott has made that clear. DeSantis has made that clear. I think it's a very dangerous uh, moment, you know, for us. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that in terms of the legislative space, that's something that's ongoing that we're really going to have to struggle on to the degree that we, you know, feel we need to. Right. And I say it like that because not everybody feels that, OK, we need to go and take over the courthouse over here, go to this meeting, go to the and follow, you know, follow it, you know, chapter and verse so that we can push back. But there should be a critical mass of us that does that work. That, that has to be done. One of the examples that I was thinking of as you were asking the question, Kayla, was also around what's happening with the AP African-American studies that was um, being kicked around in Florida and actually banned in Florida, right? And um, I think that there's a a way in which, um, you know, folks do not want a proper accounting of American history that scholars have been calling for for years, and many scholars have been doing for years, right? Um, but one of the things that I remind folks is we're not just training folks to be in African-American studies necessarily, right? Like the, if you take the AP course and then you do the exam and you pass it, you will be prepared for any area of study afterward because it's a robust, very detailed um, module of study. And so if you're able to pass that, if you're able to digest that, understand it, pass the exam, and you wanted to go into sociology or you wanted to go into law or you wanted to go into history or one of the STEM fields, you will be prepared because what we're doing is preparing thinkers. We're preparing people who are imagining that changes are possible in society, but they are also trying to achieve justice, right? They don't want to just, you know, name the problems. They're also trying to figure out what are some solutions so that we don't persist in saying we're moving forward as a society But yet we still have all these problems that we've been identifying for many years. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, that's what we're trying to produce in the classroom. But you're absolutely right. And and to that point, not everybody in K through 12 is even prepared to teach African-American studies or prepared to teach the AP or prepared to teach CRT in, in, in K through 12. And I think that's just low hanging fruit. Right. Um, and the reality to, is they haven't you know, been, right? We, we don't I live in a country where critical race theory is being taught to <laughs> kindergartners, you know, and, and they're writing out the Emancipation Proclamation in cursive. Like this, <laughs> these things are just like sort of not happening. And it is a sort of hysteria that we are watching take hold and shape into these different, these different sectors. But then, but then I also just want to ask, because, I know we're getting toward the end, so I know I have a question and, and Blake has one to, to get us wrapped up, but there's a material cost to book banning, right? And when we start to think about books being taken off the shelves of uh, elementary school libraries and public libraries, there's a real, um, I, I'm so from St. Louis, I know I said those people are like, what did she just say? 
live berries. Um, <laughs> the, um, there's a material cost to that. And so for families who are like watching that happen, I think about these families who are in the suburbs and in, in more rural parts of their states. Um, what, what should they be thinking about or what should they be doing um, to counteract that sort of structural reality that's restricting access to information? I think fugitivity is one of them, you know, a, a fugitive uh, strategy, which is to say, mm-hmm. okay, in these spaces, you don't want these books to be read, but occasionally we might have to have sit-ins where we, those things are read. Occasionally we'll have to take over public spaces, you know, and, and kind of read those or pass out sections of it. Um, kind of like David Walker's appeal, you know what I mean? Like, I think that that's a, mm-hmm. that kind of grassroots approach, direct action approach may be necessary in some spaces um, as also political theater, right? I mean, I think that that's, you know, something that uh, can be dramatized quite easily. Um, you know, like they have Shakespeare in the park, we should have Du Bois in the park, you know what I'm saying? Uh, mm-hmm. We should have Franz Fanon in the park, you know, Audre mm-hmm. Lorde in the park, right? And I think that those are things that we can do. So I think that sometimes, you know, in American society, we have examples of when things are banned, that actually make them popular. When you say mm-hmm. something, no, no, don't do this, don't do that. The, the trick of it right now is that um, <laughs> social media has made it so people aren't reading in general, right? So, like, if you ban a book, it's like, okay, well, that's just one less thing I have episode. to read. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'm on the TikTok. Get the, exactly. The, what, was, what did we call those books? Spark Notes? The Spark the Notes now is just the TikTok, the TikTok version. It's, and so I think that, you know, uh, the people who want to read will be able to find these books. But I think I'm hoping that other spaces uh, will be created in the public sphere, but also, you know, people creating bookstores at their home or, you know, libraries at their home or libraries in their backyards, in their garages, like really making it a communal uh, resistance, you know, to, to, to the book banning. Because you can't justify, to my mind, that we have something like a TikTok and Instagram and all of this, you know, fancy technology. And then we have something are as archaic as a book ban. Mm-hmm. I mean, book ban is from the, the 17th century. Like, come on, right? Mm-hmm. So why do we want to hold on to something that's so archaic? Because we're scared of, you know, people reading and understanding how American society came to be through death, through exclusion, right? Like those are the things, through accumulation of power. Those are the things that we're saying we're trying to prevent. Um, but people in American society also tend not to worry about much until it's happening to them directly, you know? And I think that that's the thing, you know, uh, working class white folks, when, when factories are being shut down in the early 20th century, that's affecting them too, you know? And so Mm -hmm. that's when they say, okay, yeah, maybe we should, you know, uh, band with the, the black unions or let black union membership, you know, allow union membership to, to African-American workers in this union because all this stuff is affecting all of us, right? right Occasionally right. you have those moments in American society, but it's only when people feel that, oh, this is my issue, that they say we should collectivize, that we should organize together. So yeah. I'm hoping that people start to see in us themselves, right, in our struggle, see their own struggle. That's the goal of Black Studies, ultimately. It's really to produce a kind of, uh, radical humanity, right? That mm-hmm. when people start to really see like, no, nah, that's a struggle that I can understand. But 
if you're being rewarded for not understanding it, then you will say that's not my struggle. And those reward yeah. systems are everywhere in American society. They they disrupted working class unity in American history because white workers were given a few extra coins than yeah. the black workers. Carbine. A few extra a few extra uh that's right, a few extra protections than the black workers. So if if you're getting those protections against another class of workers, you don't want to be the one who's the whistleblower now, yeah. you know? Right. And so those kind of uh, incentivized systems are part of the structure as well. Yeah, I think that that's where also CRT is beneficial to us because it mm-hmm. identifies the interstice, right? It identifies the places where uh, we have a rule here, we have a policy here, but then we have this gap between the policy and the material effect. And it, it, it helps people to see that gap. And I mm-hmm. think that that's really crucial uh, for for American culture that is highly technological, highly sophisticated in many regards, but reproduces these gaps over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Well, Professor Tenson, we're, we're at the end of our time. It went by very quickly. Maybe. I have a, a final question that's a quick one, but it is putting you on the spot, but you're a professor, so I know you're ready for it, <laughs> which is simply... For folks who have been listening and, and want to learn more about both the, the intellectual tradition we've been talking about and the backlash to it, give us one to three texts or other resources that you would recommend folks checking out. Sure. Uh, thank you for that. And thank you for, you know, having me on. This has been fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first one I would say embrace the 1619 project. Right. Mm-hmm. So I would say read that listen to uh, Nicole Hannah Jones's work wherever you can find it. She's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also, since we mentioned Robin D.G. Kelly, recommend Freedom Dreams. That's mm-hmm. the book that I teach to my undergraduates in uh, our classes named after that book, Freedom Dreams, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Intro to Black Studies is, is named Freedom Dreams at SLU. So we read that one. And then, um, let's see, a third book that's probably something that we haven't... A, a, a colleague of mine at Brandeis just published a book called The Wounded World. And it's mm-hmm. W.B. Du Bois um, writing on World War One, And it's a brilliant book. And mm-hmm. I think it will give a lot of context to the emergence of, um, of imperialism in, in the early 20th century that resonates with our day. You know, and I think that that's a that's a new book that I think your listeners would definitely appreciate. Well, thank you for that. I'm interested in that one too. I'm yeah. definitely going to check that out. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for taking time to, yes. to be here today, to take us to class. Take us to uh, class. And, and you're on sabbatical, right? I'm not. I'm on just for summer. Just for summer. Oh, just for summer. It's okay, summertime. Okay. <laughs> but you were not working and you came and did this with us. Came so, yeah, class. No, this is important. For free. I, I think. I think this is <laughs> <laughs> it's all yes, good coming nice. to uh to build with with my folks and um you know like i said at the beginning i appreciate the work that you guys are doing mm-hmm. in many respects you are doing way more than than many of us as professors right i mean because you're out there on the ground on the concrete organizing our communities uh for justice um speaking truth to power as we as people always say and kind of upholding the tradition that we've been talking about. It's an intellectual tradition, but it's also a political tradition. And I think that that work needs to be commended and duplicated. 
So salute to both of y'all. Wow, well, thank you. Thank you for ending on that generous, very kind, generous note. Okay. And we need uh, to get y'all up to slew to, you know, we should do like a live know, recording of anytime. Under anytime. The arch, we'll come. You know what I mean? That would be, be dope. I'm a billiken and a bear. That. I'm fine. I know. I'm, I know yeah. that backstory. Yeah. And, and rest, <laughs> always got to say rest in peace to our brother, Jonathan Smith. Man, Absolutely. Who, uh, mm-hmm. who Absolutely. worked with you, Kayla. So. Who did, who's mm-hmm. done so much for so many. Um, and, and just want to, you know, in, in the note and say black, black studies as a department, as an idea, it really has um, saved the lives of so many young black people who go into these institutions, who discover themselves and who come out of these institutions and do really powerful work. And so I, I'm mm-hmm. just never shocked when someone's like, yeah, I majored in African-American studies. I'm like, I know. Because those, <laughs> those, those classrooms, those departments, those professors, they become your family. So thank yeah. you for doing mm-hmm. both the work of teaching right future generations, but also um, being, you know, being a being family to them as well, and, and ensuring that they are well and taken care of, um, because we know we know how um, how hard those years are, especially on first generation low income students who th- they're encountering this for the first time. So yeah. I appreciate that. We're going to let you go, um, mm-hmm. and thank you again so much for joining us. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back uh, to wrap up the episode. You are listening to Under the Arch. Appreciate y'all. Welcome back uh, to Under the Arch. That yes. was an amazing conversation. That was I'm... great. Um, you know, we have professors on here. It's like they're, they're, they're going to give you all the history. They're going to teach you. They're going to break gonna it learn down. Something. You ready to learn something? Yes. Okay. If you, if you didn't, didn't have your notepad, go back and list it again. Take and write it down. Take those. Take these articles. Listen to these folks. Because really, what I appreciated was this, like this fugitive response, right? We Mm -hmm. have to be committed in these moments to teaching ourselves, our communities, Mm -hmm. our families, the truth, even when the truth is trying to be erased, Mm -hmm. hidden and destroyed. Um, And that's, that's the work that we're going to have to do in the face of this. Um, And also continuing to organize, you know, there are, I know people, our listeners are like, organizing is the answer to everything, Caitlin, because it is. (laughs) It It is. is. There's no way around it. But did his reference to fugitivity remind you of anything? I mean, it reminded me of Whitney. Yes. I was like, we got to remind the listeners to go back and listen to to that episode. This season is all all happening. It's all connected. Yes. You know, if you don't see this, this design that we are doing <laughs> then by the end you're gonna be like oh they they just set this up this has been that's a roadmap right. to truth right. you know a roadmap to truth clarity uh, and power and so I'm, yes. I'm super excited about it grateful for professor Tenson yeah. for joining us and if you don't know what we're talking about a couple episodes we did one with whitney ben sam strauss they talked about fugitive negotiations so negotiating from a, a position of the kind of underclass and in American context, global context, and and that definitely came up in that conversation. Also, yeah. seemed very similar in some ways to the conversation we just had on the last episode yeah, with, Shira. with Shira Berkowitz with the uptick in trans attack legislation and yep. attack on CRT. So you see yep. these trends playing out. We're seeing these trends. We also talked to Richard and Ashley about you know, attacks on voting rights and this idea yep. of a multiracial democracy. And so it really is by saying, you know, under the arts, there are so 
many experts, so many people who are committed to fighting on all these fronts all the time. And that is our responsibility to figure out how we can take action, how we can show up inside of these conversations and that these fights are connected, right? These fights are connected. Yeah. All right, let's do our thank yous. As always, thank you to our team. Our team. Z, Johnny, Angelo, Zoe, Valerie for logistical assistance. Thank you for helping us pull off each and every one of these episodes. Deep appreciation as we get ready to wrap up this season. Yeah. Four. Season four. Oh my goodness. We want to thank our music minute artist, uh, Shinra Knives, for the song Posture. Again, you can find that on all streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. And you can find us on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, and mm-hmm. at underthearchpod at gmail.com. Send us your music minutes, send us your recommendations, send us your feedback, yes, your comments, please. your thoughts, your questions. It all helps us build up for season five, which we're going to do at Ooh. some point. Yikes! But we're doing it. Um, and then any special, I have a special announcement yeah. about an event. You know, we talked about reparations on this podcast a mm-hmm. lot. Going to talk about it Again, but in the meantime, uh, this July 26th at uh, 6 p.m. at New Northside Family Center, we're going to have the fourth public meeting for the Reparations Commission. Um, And so we talked about that with Dr. Will Ross earlier in the season. And so we're on July 26th is the fourth meeting. So please, um, please come out and be a part of that process. We are moving along, you know, Mm -hmm. moving along. We're we're Mm -hmm. one third of the way there. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. I'm so excited and hope to see folks there. Um, and then the last thing for me, I just wanted to add a special note, really throwing on top of where we ended with Professor Tenson and those recommendations he gave. This episode is dropping on the 4th of July by design to give you a little bit of a critical injection on the 4th of July. Mm-hmm. Also happening that day, you heard us reference um, Robin D.G. Kelly a couple of times during that conversation and his article in the New York Review of Books. Um, But if this conversation was of interest to you, there's a new anthology being released on July 4th by Robin D.G. Kelly, Colin Kaepernick, Kianga Yamada-Taylor. It's called Our History Has Always Been Contraband in Defense of Black Studies. So I thought... What could be more appropriate than noting that they didn't pay us to say that, but they we are telling not. you. This is not an ad. <laughs> this, is just, this is what we'll be out. reading. Yes. This is what we'll be checking out yes. on, on July 4th. Um, yeah. And as always, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We yes. are, this is our eighth episode. We have just a couple more to go. Just a couple more. And they're going to be good ones. So stay be- tuned. Mm-hmm. We'll see you next time. You're listening to Under the Arch. Bye. We have come so far, so far to go.